to another episode of Mysteries of the Dark Passenger. I'm your host, Aaron Blackman. Today's episode takes us to three small towns in the state of Missouri. All three of these towns are within 80 miles of each other. Other than being in the same state, these three towns have one other thing in common. All three were the sites of women being abducted in the middle of the night. Our story begins in Max Creek, Missouri. 42-year-old Trudy Darby was a clerk at the K&D convenience store in Max Creek. On January 19, 1991, she was working the night shift alone. Though everything initially appeared to be normal, Trudy began feeling uneasy. At approximately 10 p.m., Trudy called her son from the store, stating that there was a suspicious man hanging around outside the store. Her son headed straight to the store to check on his mother. Since the store was only two miles from their house, he was able to get there within ten minutes of Trudy placing the call. Once Trudy's son arrived, he entered the store, but there was no sign of his mother anywhere. As he looked around the store, Trudy's son noticed that her purse, coat, and even her car were all still there and undisturbed. However, he did notice that the cash drawer was open with money missing. Fearing that she had been kidnapped, Trudy's son contacted the police. During the call, he was instructed to stay at the store and wait for police to arrive. Trooper Jimmy Mays was put in charge of the investigation. Mays was a member of the Missouri State Highway Patrol. After arriving, the police conducted a search of the store which revealed that the only things missing from the store was $200 from the cash drawer and Trudy. After answering the police's questions, Trudy's son became impatient and left the store to drive around to see if he could locate his mother. Though after driving around most of the night, he was unfortunately unsuccessful in locating her. While the police were processing the crime scene at the store, they had also begun a search for Trudy that night. They set up roadblocks to check all the traffic traveling the nearby roads that night, but were unsuccessful in finding any details that would help them find Trudy. After searching for Trudy without any luck, a local citizen was walking around looking for Trudy when he discovered traces of blood and hair, which were located on the side of a road close to the Little Niangua River. Trooper Jimmy Mays was notified of the discovery and went to check it out. While Mays was inspecting the scene, he discovered a 9mm casing close to the blood and hair. At this point, Mays knew they were most likely looking for a murder victim instead of the victim of a kidnapping. Just a few hours later, using the helicopter for help to speed the search, Trudy's body was discovered on the banks of the river. Upon examination of her body, it was revealed that she had most likely been sexually assaulted and had been shot in the back of the head twice. Initially, police believed that the offender or offenders would have been someone from out of town just passing through. However, 
Once Trudy's body was discovered in such a remote location, Trooper Jimmy Mays and the rest of the local police departments began to suspect that it was more likely that Trudy was murdered by someone who was either living or had previously lived in Max Creek or the area. Mays and the other police officers began to question all the locals. The problem they were running into was that Max Creek had a population of just 244. The problem with such a small community is that everyone either knows each other or is related to each other. As they interviewed all the locals, they began to feel as if the residents either didn't know anything or were too frightened to get involved. With little evidence and no cooperating witnesses, the investigation goes cold. That is, until one evening in February, when another woman goes missing under very similar circumstances. On February 27, 1991, 30-year-old mother of two, Cheryl Kenny, disappeared from the Quality Convenience Store in Nevada, Missouri. In very similar circumstances to Trudy, Cheryl was working the night shift. By all accounts, it had been an unusually slow night, so Cheryl decided to close up a little early. Her time card shows she clocked out at 10 p.m. After clocking out, she told the janitor to head home since she would be leaving as soon as she finished closing up. She then sets the store alarm and locked the doors at 10.17 p.m. This is the last evidence of her whereabouts anyone has of Cheryl before her disappearance. Trooper Mays is also assigned to Cheryl's case as well. Within a short time, Mays begins to suspect that these two crimes are most certainly linked. He is beginning to believe that they may have a serial killer in their area. As they investigate the scene, they are unable to find many clues. The only trace of Cheryl they find is her car, which is left in the parking lot undisturbed. Through interviews conducted by the police, they were able to find out that right about the time Cheryl set the alarm and locked the door, that there were screams heard by nearby residents, which appeared to be coming from the direction of the store parking lot. Also, the janitor who was working that night stated that there was a suspicious man in the store not long before the store was going to close. The subsequent searches for Cheryl after her disappearance unfortunately would come up empty. The police were unable to find any trace of her. Over the next few months, the police continued their investigation into the murder of Trudy Darby and the disappearance of Cheryl Kinney. Then, in April, it happened again. On April 4, 1991, in Clinton, Missouri, 20-year-old Angela Hammond, who was pregnant, had been spending the day with her fiancé, Rob Schaefer, at a local barbecue. She then dropped Rob off at his house at around 10 p.m. Rob was going to be watching his little brother until his mother returned home. And then he was planning to meet back up with Angela later. Angela was going into town to hang out with other friends. She told Rob she was going to call him from the payphone in town later since she didn't have a phone in the home where she lived. At about 11.15 p.m., Angela called Rob from the payphone at the corner of Jefferson and 2nd Street, which was only seven blocks from Rob's house. While they were talking, Angela began to notice a late 60s to early 70s model green Ford truck, which kept slowly circling the block. 
The truck stuck out because in a town as small as Clinton, she did not recognize it, and also, it was unusual at that time of night for any strange vehicles to be driving through Clinton. Rob told Angela that it was probably just someone who was lost, and it wasn't until the truck pulled up next to her car by the phone booth that she became concerned. Angela told Rob about the truck pulling up beside her, and Rob had her describe the appearance of the driver to him. Angela stated she did not recognize the driver, but described him as dirty and having a beard. She said the man got out of his truck and appeared to be looking for something in his vehicle. She then asked the man if he needed to use the payphone, and he replied no. Rob then replied to Angela saying that maybe I should come up there. Angela said no, believing that there was no danger. Rob said they began to talk about other things, and then he heard Angela let out a frantic scream. He then said he heard the man say, I didn't need to use the phone anyway. Rob quickly ran out the door and jumped into his car to go find Angela. He raced over toward the payphone when he saw a green truck driving by him on the road. It was then that he saw Angela trying to wave him down. Rob slammed on the brakes and shifted the car into reverse in order to turn the car around faster. However, because he did not come to a complete stop first before shifting the car into reverse, he damaged the transmission, although he didn't know it yet. Rob began to chase the truck around town for about two miles. Then as the two vehicles made a turn, Rob's car began to die due to the damage it had sustained earlier. Rob was unable to catch the truck and was stuck on the side of the road, watching in horror as the truck sped away with Angela screaming for his help. Rob was able to get a good enough glimpse of the driver in order to help the police with the sketch. Also, Rob noticed that the green Ford had a large decal of a fish jumping out of the water on its back window. The police began an immediate search for Angela, but once again, they were unable to find any trace of her. At first, Rob was considered the prime suspect by police, but within a week, his alibi was verified and he was cleared. The police were convinced that the three abductions are related, but since they were unable to locate Cheryl or Angela, they were unable to conclusively connect these cases. With no new information, and looking as if none of the three would be solved, the cases go cold. But in 1994, Trooper Mays is contacted by someone who claims to know who killed Trudy Darby. The informant states that she used to live in Max Creek. Now away at college, she stated that the man she knew to be involved with the kidnapping and murder of Trudy was Jesse Rush. Rush was a 19-year-old local in Max Creek. At the time of Trudy's murder, he was only 15. Trooper Mays convinced the informant to allow the police to plant microphones around her apartment and invite Jesse back to her place for a drink. A few weeks later, once Rush arrives at the apartment, he is first reluctant to talk about Trudy's murder. However, after a few drinks, he begins to open up and tells the informant about the night that they kidnapped and murdered Trudy. Rush stated that his half-brother Marvin Cheney and a friend of his brother went into the K&D convenience store to get some beer, but they were going to have to rob the store since they didn't have the money to pay for it. 
According to Rush, he stayed in the car the entire time. While his brother and friend were in the store, they became agitated, and then they grabbed Trudy, dragging her out of the store, and put her in the trunk of their vehicle. Rush states that Trudy was kicking and screaming while they dragged her out of the store. He then goes on to tell that they took Trudy to an old abandoned barn, and this is where he says his brother and friend take Trudy inside the barn where they remained for a very long time. Rush, while staying in the car, says, all of a sudden, he heard a gunshot. After the recording was completed, Mays and the Missouri State Highway Patrol reviewed Jesse's statements on the tape and then placed him under arrest. They immediately brought Jesse in for further questioning. Once again, Jesse stated that he remained in the car the whole time and it was his brother Marvin and his brother's friend John who were responsible. However, Jesse elaborates with more detail when he tells the police that when they arrived at the river to dump Trudy's body, to their surprise, they discovered that she was still alive as they were pulling her out. So, his brother Marvin shot her in the head again. Throughout the entire interview, the police are not buying the whole story Rush has been telling them about having little to no involvement and only being in the car while all of this was going on. But, with little evidence to prove his larger role in the crime, they are left with Jesse's version of events. Jesse goes on to tell police what he and his brother did to cover their tracks. He stated that they later burned the barn and sent the vehicle to a scrapyard and had it crushed in order to eliminate any evidence they may have left behind. Even after Jesse gave the police an almost full confession about Trudy's murder, they still didn't have any hard evidence in their case. So they began to look into Jesse's brother Marvin Cheney. At this point, the police only had enough evidence to arrest Cheney and his friend John for Trudy Darby's kidnapping and murder. They didn't have anything other than mere suspicion about their possible roles in Cheryl Kenny and Angela Hammond's disappearances. The police placed Marvin Cheney and his friend John under arrest. While interviewing Cheney, they were unable to get anywhere. Cheney refused to talk. His friend John was also questioned, but both John and Cheney had alibis. At first, Cheney's wife backed up his story that he was using for his alibi. However, the police suspected she hadn't been truthful with them, so Trooper Mays returned to interview Cheney's wife again. She revealed that Cheney did not treat her well and was very cruel to her. She stated that she didn't speak up before because she was afraid of him and what he might do to her if she said anything. But, since he had been arrested, she was no longer afraid of him. She stated that during that night, she fell asleep, and that it was possible that Cheney could have left after this without her knowledge. With this new information, the police were able to go ahead and charge Marvin Cheney for the disappearance and murder of Trudy Darby. Once both Rush and Cheney were arrested and charged with Trudy's murder, people from around town started coming forward with stories that they were told by Jesse about what they had done. 
It appeared that once the brothers were arrested and no longer a threat, that the people in town finally became confident enough in their own safety to come forward with the truth about what they knew. Even some of the brothers' family members came forward to corroborate the stories that were being told to the police. During the thorough investigation into Marvin Cheney, one fact that Mays uncovers that bothered him is that on the night of Trudy's disappearance, the police actually pulled over and searched the vehicle that both Rush and Cheney were traveling in. The police searched every inch in the car, but saw no signs of foul play, so the men were released. Also, Rush and Cheney were in the car, but not their friend John. John had an alibi that the police could not disprove, and other than the word of Rush, they had no way of tying him to the crime. They were forced to let John go, and he was not charged with any crime involving Trudy's disappearance and murder. With all the evidence mounting against him, Cheney decides to take a plea deal of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Cheney does this to avoid the death penalty. Rush, on the other hand, is only charged with second-degree murder since the police have little to no proof of his involvement other than his story, which conveniently leaves his involvement to a minimum. The police know that if they want to be able to up the charges on Rush, they'll need to either obtain physical evidence or another confession from Rush divulging his true level of involvement in Trudy's murder. While waiting in jail for his trial to begin, Rush becomes cellmates with a man named Ed Thomas. Thomas is known in the jail as someone who is very knowledgeable as far as the legal system goes. As Thomas and Rush begin to get to know each other, Rush begins to inquire about how he can possibly reduce any sentence or get off altogether. Eventually, Thomas is moved to another prison, but Rush decides to keep up their communication through letters. Rush believes that he can fully trust Thomas, so in his letters, he begins to open up to Thomas and give much more detail to what exactly happened and what his involvement actually was. As it turns out, Rush should not have trusted Thomas after all. Thomas takes the letters written by Rush and turns them over to the police. The police state that in these letters, Rush is able to give details that he would have no way of knowing without being present and actively participating in the crimes while they're being committed. One such detail which caught the police's attention was that Rush says in the letter that when Cheney shot Trudy the second time, that right after he noticed blood and hair on the ground next to her body. Other disturbing details include Rush admitting how much he enjoyed being involved with Trudy's kidnapping, rape, and murder. Once the police have the letters, they are able to up the charges from second-degree murder to first-degree murder. The letters themselves leave little doubt in the police's minds that not only was Rush fully involved in Trudy's murder, but they may have just gotten a serial murderer off of the streets. His trial begins in September of 1997. It doesn't take a jury long to convict Rush of first-degree murder, having seen what Rush admitted in writing the letters. 
Rush was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. With Rush and Cheney both behind bars, it leaves police to wonder of any other possible crimes the two may have been involved in. Unfortunately for the police, after their convictions, Rush and Cheney are not talking. Many have speculated of Rush and Cheney's possible involvement in Cheryl Kenny and Angela Hammond's disappearances. There are conflicting reports. The Clinton Police Department, as recently as 2009, stated that they have possible DNA evidence, but they state the evidence precludes Rush and Cheney. However, this has not changed the belief of Trooper Mays. There are several reasons why Mays remains convinced of both Rush and Cheney's guilt. The first is similarity in crimes. They were all committed in a very similar manner. All three crimes involved women alone, at night, in sparsely populated areas where they were grabbed quickly before anyone had time to react. They also all appeared to be crimes of opportunity instead of premeditation. All three victims appear to have been at the wrong place at the wrong time, instead of some sort of premeditated target. The second is proximity. All three kidnappings were within 80 miles of each other. The killer, or killers, would have had to have had some prior knowledge of the areas in order to feel comfortable and also avoid detection by any law enforcement officer or citizen. These areas were likely chosen due to their rural settings and the subject knowing that in these areas, it typically takes law enforcement much longer to respond to any possible 911 calls that are made due to the fact that there are a lot fewer officers which are then asked to patrol much larger areas. The third? Once Cheney and Rush were arrested, the abductions stopped. After their arrest, it appeared as if this particular string of abductions had stopped. None after their arrests appeared to match the way Rush and Cheney went about their crimes. However, the biggest reason comes in the letters that Jesse wrote to Thomas. In the letters, Rush describes abducting and murdering two other women. While he does not name Cheryl and Angela specifically, he does give details about the crimes and also references where the bodies may have been dumped. In 2000, the police did begin to get their hopes up when a set of human remains were found in a field near where it was believed that Cheryl's body would have been dumped. But, once the autopsy was completed, it was revealed that the remains belonged to a male. Unfortunately, to date, neither woman nor their remains have ever been recovered. And in a case like this, without a body or physical evidence, there will likely not be a trial. In 2017, Marvin Cheney died of natural causes in prison. So, the police's only hope in getting justice for Cheryl and Angela is to either find their remains or have Rush or someone else break down and give the police a detailed confession admitting their involvement. As far as the DNA evidence the police say they possess in the Hammond case, 
You have to wonder how they know the DNA they found could only belong to the person responsible for Angela's disappearance. Also, they obviously would have checked both Cheney and Rush's DNA, but if John really was involved in all these crimes as well, were the police able to obtain John's DNA for a comparison? Unless he volunteered it, DNA would be hard to get from him since the police never even had enough evidence to take him to trial. Without a warrant, police would have had to wait for John to discard something in a public place. It is entirely plausible that there was another person or persons involved in the Kinney and Hammond cases, but many believe it is much more likely that both Cheney and Rush are involved with these disappearances. It's also highly likely that there was another individual or individuals involved in this crime as well, but he or she just hasn't been named yet. Although, one problem with this assumption is Jesse Rush. Through the entire ordeal, it was Rush who continually told people not only about the crimes, but also who was involved in them. One could argue that it would be highly unlikely that he would have been able to keep quiet about it for this long. However, you could also argue that it's just as likely that Rush, having been burned several times by opening his mouth, has now learned his lesson and has simply decided to keep his mouth shut about the whole thing. Hopefully one day, soon, that last vital clue will be found that allows the police to be able to solve these crimes for the sake of the families who have to live with these tragedies each and every day. So in closing, remember to always remain vigilant, and if someone or something begins to bother you, or just feels off, don't ignore that sensation. That's your brain trying to give you a signal of possible danger. We must always remain as safe and aware as possible. Our safety is our own responsibility first. For more information on these cases, it's available on the TV show Welcome to Murder Town, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, and the website unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com. So until the next episode, this has been Mysteries of the Dark Passenger.